We're getting a new series today on home life, uh, building healthy families, uh, just like we have a family of God as a church. Also, uh, we have uh, family units, and um, all of us are in different places with that. Uh, but I think over the next few weeks, uh, you'll hear some helpful principles from Scripture uh, that'll help you in relationship, uh, in different kinds of relationships. Uh, we're going to start off by talking about marriage. We're going to talk about how to have a, a marriage that is built to last uh, today. It's always interesting to hear what kids think about marriage. Uh, when asked to decide how, or excuse me, who to marry, Kirsten, age 10, answered this way. And no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. Alan Hades 10 said this, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Don't try that one, guys. When asked to give the right age to get married, six-year-old Freddie said, no age is good to get married at. you got to be a fool to get married. In answering the age-old question about whether it is better to be single or married, Anita, age nine, answered with some good insight. It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. I hear some amens. And when asked how best to make a marriage, <laughs> when asked how best to make a marriage work, ten-year-old Ricky perceptively replied, "Tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck." What exactly does a truck look like? <laughs> no, don't answer. All right. <laughs> We're going <laughs> to look at, uh, at, at Genesis chapter 2 to, to figure out how to, to really succeed at marriage. Um, there are three stages of marriage I've found through the experience and observation. Uh, it begins with a romance stage. Uh, where you're all gaga and you got the big googly starry eyes and and all you can think about is how wonderful and awesome that other person is. Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, Solomon in Song of Songs, chapter 4. Uh, the, he talks about his bride-to-be, and, and he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Now, remember, this is Middle Eastern talk, so this really is complimentary. It, does, it may be not sound like that to you. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending Mount Gilead. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. He continues to describe her physical appearance and characteristics, but I think I'll stop at the neckline. <laughs> you just know that he is hes raptly in love, and and in this phase, it's all idealism. But that sometimes is followed, I think, often by the reality stage. The reality stage is where uh, you start to figure out uh, that maybe there are some parts of that other person that attracted you because it was so different to start with. But, but then can, uh, by some strange happenstance of time and continuity, becomes irritating to you. Uh, the reality stage is one that um, is, uh, is, can, can be disconcerting to us. 
A young minister was asked to perform his first wedding ceremony. <clears throat> he was nervous, so he asked for some advice from an older minister. Uh, the older minister told the young preacher everything he needed to know, and he gave him this fi one final suggestion. If you ever forget what you're supposed to say, just quote scripture. The ceremony went smoothly until he pronounced the happy couple man and wife. At that point, his mind went blank. That's when he remembered the advice of the old preacher. So he quoted the only verse that came to his mind in that moment. For Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> you know, I've always seen, and, and it's kind of uh, cynical to see when a couple is getting married, and, and I'm usually back with the groom before the ceremony, and, and people inevitably will say something like, you better grab him or he's going to run. You know, that's people that have more of a, a pessimistic view of marriage. Oftentimes in this reality stage, uh, you can kind of get that mindset. And I, I think that's unfortunate because I, I, I believe uh, that we shouldn't expect and we shouldn't give people that negative expectation. I think the reality stage is very real, but I also think it can be navigated. But the third stage is what I call the rethinking stage, the rethinking stage. <clears throat> if the romance stage is when we think of marriage as the ideal perfection, the reality stage is where the ideal can turn into an ordeal. The rethinking stage is when you want a new deal. And there are three choices when you get to that place. You can choose to settle. You can have the boss in your marriage. You can have it be uh, just something that, that continues in name and in legality, but is, is not anywhere near all that it could be. Or you can choose to bail, and that is an option in our world today that has increasingly become uh, legally easy, though the grief, uh, the pain is still hard to bear. Or I think the best option, uh, the option I would recommend to you is to to build a marriage that lasts. To invest your time, to invest your energy, to invest your life and your faith into building a marriage. It's not easy. Ted Turner, uh, who we from Georgia really know because that's where he really made his fortune, he, he saw before anyone else did what cable would become and, and built Turner Broadcasting System, TBS and TNT and all those stations. He, he owned the Atlanta Braves. He, he said his quote, after having done CNN and the Superstation, winning the America's Cup in 1997, the 95 World Series with the Atlanta Braves, I feel like I can do just about anything except have a successful marriage. So how do we do that? How do we build a marriage that will last? You know, I've always marveled at uh, folks that sit down to build something without uh, even looking at the manual. Maybe you're one of those folks. Maybe you used to be one of those folks. You try doing that for a while, and you come up with things that look like this shed I built one time, which had this big open gap in the back because I put the wrong pieces together. And I passed it off as I just wanted air conditioning in the summer in my shed, but my wife didn't buy that. And it was, 
it was not so nice. You know, if I'm going to build something, I, I look at the pictures of what it's supposed to look like. I take that manual and read it cover to cover before I start. Uh, where is the manual for marriage? I think we go all the way back to where it starts. It starts in Genesis chapter 2. And in this story of the creation, uh, we read about, I think, two purposes of marriage. Uh, we read about how marriage started. Uh, the first purpose of marriage, I think we see here, is relationship. It's relationship. Or you might say companionship. In the first parts of this section, now Genesis 2, the first part talks about how God created everything. And remember, he did this by speaking it into existence. And then he creates man, Adam, his name. And he creates him out of the dust and, and blows life into his nostrils. And then, then we read this in verse 18. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed all the, uh, out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the, living, or the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Uh, interesting, you see verse 18, the first part of it, and then, then you immediately go into this naming ceremony of what are all these things going to be called. Why is that? I think it's to show the juxtaposition. It's to show that, yes, mankind can have supportive and loving relationships with animals. In fact, I think we're supposed to make a positive impact on the nature around us. Uh, you know, the other day, I was coming down Gay Street, and I saw a box turtle crossing the road. And I actually stopped and got out and gave the box turtle a ride. Now, somebody almost ran in the back of me while I was doing that, but uh, you know, that we're supposed to have that kind of relationship, and, and we can have supportive relationships, but he says, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. That is, it's hard to have this companionship. It's hard to have this relationship. It's hard to have this mutual peer-type relationship with anything other than another person in particular, we will find out it's impossible to have this bond of the family unit. It's impossible to have this, this relationship without a man and a woman coming together. And so he has all the animals come before him. And, and maybe they were like they were when Noah boarded them onto the ark. Maybe they came by in twos and and Adam sees them together, and then he gives them different names, and, and it just drives home the point that uh, he is, in a sense, alone. He's devoid of what he really needs. He's devoid of human companionship. And so we see that the, the second purpose of relationship is partnership. And I think those are a little different. A relationship or companionship and partnership. I think a relationship is, is that interaction. I think partnership is, is that forming of a team. And I'll emphasize the word help. Now we have, I think oftentimes uh, in discussion, we've had negative, uh, negative thoughts about what it means to be 
the woman in a relationship. And you take here, and I've heard people say, well, the woman's to be a helper. And, and we see that kind of as a subservient thing. Uh, the woman is, uh, was made out of the man, so she's secondary, all that. That's not, I don't think any of that's true. In fact, this same word we see, God saying that Adam, the first man, needs a helper, we see applied to God. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. <laughs> Listen, if we think helping is subservient, are you going to say that about God? You're going to say that God was secondary? No. I think what this points out to us is uh, that marriage is and should be mutually beneficial. And perhaps one of the greatest things we can do for another person is to compliment them, is to help them, is to assist them through life. Life can be tough. Uh, life can be onerous. Life can be full of trials and troubles. Uh, we need, I think, and what we see here is uh, them being brought together to face life together in partnership. The second part of verse 20 uh, through verse 23, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. They were for, the, the woman was formed. The woman comes into existence uh, to be this partner, to be this suitable helper that the man needs. And so we have that ideal for us. We see that ideal for us. And you might be saying, that all sounds well and good. I believe in those purposes of marriage. I believe that marriage should be about relationship, companionship. I believe it should be about partnership, being a team. Well, how do we do that? The verses 24 and 25, I think, give us four building blocks of marriage. Four building blocks of a marriage that will last. Just in those two verses. What do those verses say? That is why a man leaves his father and mother is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We say, well, how do you get four building blocks out of that? Well, they're there. Severance, you see, is the first building block. Severance. What do I mean by that? Not uh, that you're leaving a job. No, severance, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother. What that points us to, and it's a strong word in Hebrew there, what it points us to is the necessity for a husband and wife to change the priority in their human relationships to one another instead of their family identities. And that Hebrew word actually could be translated, probably should be translated, forsake. A man should forsake his father that is, he should leave, he should not pay attention to them. And I think that's a little strong. I think you can have very positive family relationships and still be married. But I do think, I really believe you should have a priority for your husband or your wife. That, should, that person should become your first priority in human relationship. And if kids come 
after the wedding ceremony, I think the husband or wife relationship should still be primary. Doesn't mean you can't have those positive relationships, but that priority is very crucial in building a solid partnership and building a solid team. Uh, I often recommend to couples when they get married, if they can do it, if it will work for them, is, is to go and, and live someplace other than the homes they grew up in, the, the hometown, uh, that geographical location they grew up in, just for this fact that they learn to depend on each other. They, they learn to prioritize one another. When we have around us and we don't take this step to, to sever, uh, to, to change our priority, then when we have arguments, and all couples do, uh, then we have other parties involved for many reasons. I think it's vital for that first building block to be uh, this leaving, the severance, the prioritization of our marriage over other human relationships. The second building block I see here is permanence. Is permanence. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave. That word in Hebrew means to be bonded or be welded. It means to be fused together. You think of that, it gives you maybe a whole different mindset. In our culture today, you see marriage depicted in, in uh, media, in different shows and movies. It's not given at all that concept, is it? If, it, if it's not working... Uh, just do something different. If it's not worth it working, just find somebody else. Uh, that's not the biblical ideal. The biblical ideal is that we come into marriage expecting uh, for it to be a lifelong proposition. We come in expecting to, to be fused or welded. And what happens when you fuse or weld something? It is ideally welder. It ideally is, it becomes so tightly together, you can't even see where it once was apart. It once was two things. Two, it becomes stronger, doesn't it? And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But this permanence, this seeking to be knitted together leads to the third building block, and that's oneness. It's oneness. <laughs> he said it right there. Jesus talked about this as well, Matthew 19, 6. He said, they are no longer two, man and woman, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let the oneness come, and let the oneness that joining together be so strong that nothing can, can tear it apart. That's God's ideal, that, that we walk together, that we experience and share life together. That we don't lose our separate identities in terms of personality, uh, but we determine that we're going to come together and face life together. In other words, what I think of when I think of oneness is we become a team. We become a team. Uh, a team to, to deal with whatever comes. I love the saying uh, that joy should be so strong. Our marriage should be so strong that our joys are doubled and our griefs are shared or halved. And this is, uh, in life we face, as we go through life, we face and deal with things as a team. When I do premarital counsel with couples, I always say something like this to them. There is no one right pattern 
for who does the dishes and who does the grass mowing and the weed eating. There's no one right pattern for who takes care of the money, uh, who does the balancing of the bills or whatnot. There's no one right pattern. Should you have one checking account or joint account or should you have two? No one right pattern. The overarching ideal is this, that you become a team. And whatever those duties are, those responsibilities are, you figure out by communication, by mutual sacrifice, you figure out how to make it work, how to take care of it. And that can change over time. But you figure out all of the things that are necessary to have a healthy family. How do you get those things done? You work together as a team. You face it together as one. I also tell couples that uh, you come into marriage, you and her or you and him, two uh, different individuals. From the day you say I do, it becomes, a, there's a third entity created. There's a third entity called we. Uh, and you need to, to feed the we. The, the we is the team. The te- theme is, is that oneness that you have. But I, I know it takes time. I know it takes investment. And I also will tell you on a continuum of oneness and maybe isolation, there are times where even if you've been married quite a while, you, you, you feel more along this side toward isolation. Maybe you're more toward this size of oneness or a team. The goal is to wherever you find yourself, if you're married today, uh, to head toward, to move toward that more oneness, that team setting. I'm going to talk more about next week how to have a great marriage. But for today, I want to say to you, we want to move from isolation in our marriage relationships if we're married to, to that sense of oneness, that sense of building a team. And fourthly, the fourth building block is intimacy. Intimacy. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if you caught it, or maybe you thought, since it said naked in it, verse 25, I wasn't going to talk about it. We're down south, we call it. We don't, we don't pronounce it naked, we say naked. What is the significance? They were naked and felt no shame. <clears throat> I think it was because sin had not yet entered the equation. I think it was because there was no guilt or shame. It was because they were completely at peace with one another. They felt trust with one another. There was no guilt or shame. The goal, I think, in a marriage that lasts, uh, we build a marriage we should build, and we need to build in intimacy. And I'm not just talking about physical intimacy. I'm talking about a sense of transparency. I'm talking about that you can be who you are, with your flaws and with your strengths and have your wife or your husband accept you completely. One of the biggest hurdles to this transparency or intimacy I I find in marriages is our tendency as humans to remember uh, past wrongs. Forgiveness is absolutely essential on a daily, continual basis in marriage. Because we are going to mess up. We are going to hurt each other. But I will tell you, I will recommend to you, and this, may, this one statement may make all the difference in your relationship. To keep a short record of wrongs. 
to, to not continually, as you have disagreements in the future, bring up the past will help to create that trust and that transparency that you need. I'm telling you, you won't be transparent for long if your partner knows your weak spots, knows your past failings, and zeroes in on those whenever you have the slightest disagreement. You won't have much transparency. Instead of uh, being able to share those things that bring shame and guilt, you actually have them aggravated or irritated. It's vital for us to build that trust. It's vital for us to build that intimacy, that transparency. It takes forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness and grace are hallmarks of a healthy, great marriage that lasts. You know, I love Ecclesiastes. Now, I talked to you before about Song of Solomon. Uh, let me tell you something else that, that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now, I know sometimes you read Ecclesiastes and you think, there is nothing to get out of that. It is so confusing. Uh, but Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says the, this curious words, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Think about that in the context of marriage. Uh, there are lots to be done in having a family life and taking care of all the responsibilities. Two are better than one. They can... They can work together to accomplish much more, even than they could accomplish as the separate individuals. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, pay careful attention to Ecclesiastes 4.12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. What's he saying? Is he saying that there should be three people in a marriage? No. No, what he's saying is, he's saying that God needs to be a part, an essential part of that marriage. It is why it's so important, if you're not married yet, it is so important for you to understand the wisdom of the instruction to not be unequally yoked. It is so important to not, if you're not married yet, to not marry, even date seriously, uh, someone who is a non-believer. Even worse, is hostile toward faith. It's why it's so important for, as we go into marriage, we have a growing, healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. And what this says is that if a husband and wife are committed to one another, they've left uh, their former lives, their families in terms of priority, and they've, they've determined to, to weld, be welded together. They've severed that. They've per become permanently welded together. They've devoted themselves to becoming a team for oneness. They're working toward transparency. They're working toward intimacy that one, two, and three together with Jesus Christ, that marriage will last. That marriage will be a blessing. That marriage will be blessed. A little boy sat through a Sunday school class and learned about the time Jesus went to a wedding and turned water into wine. When he got home, his dad asked him what he learned from this story. The boy thought for, for a moment and answered, if you're having a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. If you're having a wedding, 
Make sure Jesus is there. <clears throat> Today, uh, some of you are not currently married. I think these principles, if marriage looms on the horizon at some point in the future, these principles are important for you to write down and keep in the mind. For others of us, we've been married for a time. Maybe a, a month or two, maybe over 50 years. Wherever we are, I think we can learn from this scripture. I think we can apply this scripture. I think it can make a difference. Father, as we think about these things today, I pray for you to, to convict us where we need to be convicted, for you to challenge us, and I, I pray, Father, for these words to become truth, applied truth in our lives. I thank you, Father, for the marriages in our congregation here. And I know it can be tough. I know it, we can get in a place we never imagined. Maybe even there's some here today who are, who are thinking about giving it up. I pray, Father, for us to hear your words of hope here. I pray for us to hear uh, these words of wisdom and how uh, to work on, how to, to have a biblical marriage. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to us and we would hear you in Jesus' name. Amen.